know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 203. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson. And today I wanted to give you sort of a a glimpse of an important discussion going on around the world. Today we have the Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars. These are researchers from around the world, and we are engaged in a discussion about language and the importance of language and how people identify themselves and how they identify their experiences. And, you know, we tend to think we 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 might know how people identify themselves in terms of sex trafficking or labor trafficking or being in the sex trade, not even trafficking. And we might profess to know their experience because we've been to um, several um, workshops or we've listened to perhaps all these podcasts. And what the researchers, what the scholars, the people who build knowledge say is that we don't necessarily know. We have to allow uh, people to describe uh, their experiences based on their own histories, and they have to identify themselves accordingly. So listen to the discussion. I think it's going to be a, a, a good one. The discussion is being led by Jared Davis and Dr. Glenn Miles. And Jared briefly ident- uh, uh, describes his experience. Um, Dr. Glenn doesn't really talk about his experience as a researcher. So I want to give you a little bit of a better idea about who these two guys are. Jared Davis has 15 years experience um, designing and conducting evidence-based research and also programming for children and vulnerable people that have experienced um, sexual exploitation and violence. So um, he's been involved in special projects on um, harmful sexual behavior among children in Cambodia, uh, street working children in the Philippines, Cambodia, Thailand, and children and young people um, who trade sex in a range of nations. So most of his work has developed in uh, post-colonial settings, often at the intersection of race, class, gender, and sexuality. So he really tries to look at all sides, not just one-dimensional, Um, He also has expertise in exploitation and and violence involving boys and young men. So um, critical to that because we don't have a lot of discussion and a lot of research in that area. Um, He also involves himself in a lot of participatory research, um, children's participation in research, trauma-informed research, 
uh, participant action research, that sort of getting the um, subjects of the research also participating in designing and carrying out the research. So Dr. Glenn Miles, he's a research associate at Oxford Center on Mission Studies, and he's a senior researcher with uh, UP International. Um, he has 30 years experience uh, focused on child abuse and exploitation in Southeast Asia. Um, he's a pioneer and he's led several um, international NGOs and projects in Cambodia. And he's facilitated a series of research projects listening to survivors of sexual exploitation, both, both prostituted men, women, boys, girls, and transgenders, also sex buyers who are males. He's an academic. Um, and again, that, that level of expertise with the sexual exploitation of boys and transgenders, also LBGT youth, um, children who are trafficked across borders, longitudinal research, between research um, over long periods of time, um, addressing demand, uh, pornography and youth. So these two guys are well qualified to lead this discussion uh, about language, about pe how people identify, and about the unique experiences um, that should be defined uh, by them, and they should be empowered to do so and to be involved uh, in the discussion, in the knowledge making. So without further ado, here is the discussion. Okay, so for this month's dialogue, we are focusing on neutrality neutrality and language and terminology in research. So we have two of our GATS senior research scholars, uh, Jarrett Davis and Glenn Miles, who are joining us today to help lead the conversations um, give their thoughts and uh, kind of provide some questions for us all to think about and get the conversations going. So um, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Jarrett to, if he wants to introduce himself a little bit more and maybe introduce the topic. So um, again, thank you all for being here. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, I know, I think probably maybe half of you, for those of you I haven't met, welcome. Um, for those of you that are First time, it's good to have you here. Um, I'm Jarrett Davis. I'm a social researcher, um, consultant. I work um, with a. I've worked with Glenn for um, a, a lot of my career, um, but usually with a network of child protection organizations, uh, mostly in Asia. Um, Glenn and I have worked together um, in developing a, a number of series of studies on um, children in uniquely vulnerable contexts, so particularly boys, young men, street working children, uh, children who trade sex, um, and so on. Uh, but that's me and Glenn. Yeah, um, you said it, Jared. I think that's fine. <laughs> cool. um, so anyway, um, we really wanted to kind of we've, as you'll see on the screen here, we've kind of wanted to 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 open this up and and so that we can talk a little bit more on what what you you all are specifically working with. Um, but we kind of wanted to open up this discussion. Um, it, one thing that. That, that really popped into my mind was in, in talking about neutrality and terminology is is um, is sort of this tension between 
neutrality and political correctness. So, and this is something that's talked about a lot. Um, we have a lot of, of talk in the media about, about language usage. There's a lot of um, people that get canceled. There's a lot of all of this stuff. Um, but I wanted to talk, because how, how do you specifically navigate that tension? Um, between being using neutral language, language that doesn't that doesn't judge or condemn or stigmatize in any way, but also language that that appropriately describes a reality um, in a way that is 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 neutral, but is um, um, yeah that that is neutral, but but that also respects. Um, people so we kind of wanted to play with some of those tensions um yeah um where did we want to start glenn yeah well any before we go any further is anyone but is there anything issues that people are burning to talk about during this session or are we just going to get see how it flows any anybody got anything they want to say particularly Okay, well, we'll take that as a no. Um, yeah, so uh, um, we, one of the things that we talked a little bit about, uh, Jar and I, was just, you know, some of the language that we use um, when we're talking about um, survivors, uh, it may be it, it may be appropriate in some contexts and not appropriate in others. And actually asking survivors themselves what they prefer the terms to be used is actually really important so for example some people might prefer to use be known as survivors others as victims some might prefer to be called um uh, prostitutes others prefer to be called a prostituted person um tell us about the things in your context where where terms have been a uh, different and may feel um uncomfortable to one group but actually it's something which people are used to being called another one i'm thinking of is um uh we uh, is in southeast asia um people don't often didn't like us using the word the term lady boy but actually it was the term that they themselves used so it's another one of those examples where it's it's different but it's like that when we were yeah, the important thing is what people themselves want. So yeah. can people think of other examples of where that's been in their context? One of the, the tricky things with us, the the the, the thing that, that Glenn started to to mention there with the um in, in Bangkok um and in, in um in, in Cambodia, is that um, one of the big pushbacks that we got was that we weren't using at the time. It was the, the 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 operating term was transgender male or transgender female, um, non-binary. There were some of those terms were still being thrown around, um, but what we had found was that 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 this this was a subgroup, um, it really a subgroup that had its own identity and people that identified and saw themselves and 
um, as ladyboys and and protected that ladyboy identity. And it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a trans man or a trans woman or or a Western concept of non-binary, but it was something else that was defined within the culture. And in order to talk about some of the unique vulnerabilities that that group experiences, we have to define that as a group using their language and respecting that as an identity. Um, so that's kind of where we kind of came from um, in ours, if that, if that kind of helps a little bit. Yeah, I um, saw that um, John and William did unmute. Do either, or John, did you have something that you wanted to share in regards to that? Well, I'm just thinking about the work that we're doing and mostly the way we get our information is we work with, we have a survivor's council. That's how they cho chose to name themselves, but some of them name themselves as lived experience experts. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, the, the challenges if you're doing, working with these groups, at least from where I sit, and my work is all right now within the United States although we're starting to deal with stuff that's coming into the United States and groups have come into the United States. So we're going to find, unlike it's not unlikely that we will find groups that identify differently. Mm -hmm. And how do we deal with that? And, and I don't have an answer. I just know that the, the way I'm trying to address it is working with individuals who have lived that experience and what is the language they want to use. And so in, in our research, we're going out and reaching out to organizations that may be interacting with them, like transit agencies or airports or that sort of stuff. And what is it that they're going to try to, how are they going to be identifying these individuals who may be trafficked and may wish to find an alternative way to live uh, or may not? Uh and how do we identify the traffickers? Uh, and so we're looking at, in this, in one instance, one project, at the technologies that might be used. And how can those technologies be used to help people who are potentially out there to help individuals who, not, who do not want to be in that position? Identify them and help them out if they want mm -hmm. out. I think that, so I don't have an answer. All I know is that it's a, it's a challenging issue. And so the way we try to address it yeah. is working with people who had, who identify themselves, whether they want to be called a survivor or they want to be called a lived, lived mm -hmm. experience expert or not many want to be called victims anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, do they want to be called someone who's, moving out and becoming, I mean, I even hear people talking about being thrivers. Mm -hmm. And so, well, what does thriving mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. term. It is. Uh, because uh, the, not everybody in this society who's never been a victim considers himself a thriver either. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, I think there are interesting challenges here. Are any of us thriving? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are any of us thriving? That's a really us, open. <laughs> have we set ourselves up with a society that can ensure that, that people thrive? Because <laughs> Right. Right. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
can't remember where I was going with that. Yeah, but continue. Anyone else? Yeah, I wanted to mention that uh, another word that has just come into my mind when when the discussion started, and this is sex industry. Um, <clears throat> um, the, the 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 thin line between uh, a, a crime and and you know you know when we talk about an industry, uh, something that people do to earn money or maybe do some business and that kind of a thing. Um, uh, and then two things <clears throat> right now in my mind about <clears throat> when we are talking about these terms, victims, sex industry, or whatever whatever term people may use, prostitutes, um, the whole idea of um, human dignity mm-hmm. and also context. And I think those those are two critical things that kind of just I feel like that, that they're good, it's good to think about that when we kind of talking about these terms and um, just when we talk about human dignity, it's kind of recognizing that recognizing that people are human before they are anything else, mm-hmm. uh, before they are victims or whatever. Those are the terms that we use. We can kind of just know that they are human. And and I remember I come from Kenya and when uh, I remember when you, AIDS, HIV AIDS was killing people in in back in the days, people are being termed as victims. And um, but that improved with time, and it became people living with HIV and AIDS. And well, and I thought that was a little bit of a kind of a little bit of a neutral term because. We recognize their dignity. We recognize that they are human first, and then they have this kind of a problem. Or they are, you know, they are they are affected by this kind of a problem. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I mean, I think that conversation, you know, comes back to it. It, it can be applied very well to sexuality, to gender, to to a lot of this. Um, you know, we we especially we've just finished this research uh, in Minnesota looking at. Um, the experiences of boys and young men who are seeking services for sexual abuse and exploitation. And we find that that a lot of um, most responses, most um, offices, whether it be government, nonprofit, um, despite them make having attempts to be inclusive and maybe that they, they use language like, you know, for all children or things like that, you know, but we find that that in in reality, um, it's that we have a child protection system that is sort of you, you have the the boy package and you have the girl package and, and and those are sort it's like you have two you have two options basically and both options are built on a presumed construct of what a boy needs and what a girl needs and um, and those are the two options now. In the way it's usually set up, the, the what the boy needs, that is usually very, very underfunded and there's hardly anything there, very not connected very much. And then you also often have a lot of survivor services that are, you know, lots of things, often reduplicated services over here that might be trying to meet a perceived need of what a a girl as defined by the, you know, funders or donors, um, what they need. Um, but what we find is that 
we're starting with gender. We're starting with those considerations rather than starting with a child or a young person or a young adult or a vulnerable person who has had experiences. Um, and then realizing that their gender and how they've been packaged by their society and by the definitions that have been assigned to them, that's a part of their experiences too. Um, you know, so like, like, that, I mean, that's just kind of, it's a conversation that we've been having um, that it's, it seems that a lot of our systems start with, well, is it A or B? And, and, and then we'll figure out what services, you know, rather than saying, okay, it's a person who has a, a complex web of needs. Um, and, and there might be a, a bits of different things that they need. Um, if, if that's helpful, but but I, I see that exactly applying all around this. Um, I think it's interesting that it's it was um, it was as long ago as 1989 when the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child was uh, launched, and 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 um, also that it was uh, um, uh, it was agreed to by so many countries around the world. And and child participation was a major part of that. Children having a voice in what they can. That that are things that that they um, how do I put this um, are things that impacted them that they they should have a voice in that and and in one in one sense that that's now what we're saying about survivors of all of all ages that they should all have have an opportunity to to be involved in decisions that are being made about them and I think when we when we put their voices. Um, high up on the agenda, then we're less likely to make a mistake when it comes to neutrality, because we're we're, we're treating them as as um, uh, as equal at some level. You know, we're saying they they have something valuable to contribute to this discussion. In fact, they they have a, they have a right to have that. Well, I, I mean. I really like the, the the direction this is is going, but I'm thinking about another group of people who are trafficked in their labor, and how do we address that? Labor trafficking. Uh, yeah, because mm -hmm. in my in one of my projects is to look at all forms of trafficking. So it's both sex, it's labor, it is people who are pressed into service in the military who are young children it's forced marriage yeah i think that's a great point because i feel like especially within the united states a lot of the language that we use is geared towards sex trafficking and most of the times even when i am talking to people in the community um when they say human trafficking they really just mean sex trafficking um so yeah, think like thinking about the language that we use or how our society is like, yeah, just when they say human trafficking means sex trafficking, whether that's because of media or it's a lot to do with funding and programming as well. So I think that's a great, a great point. Yeah. And they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> right. No, no, yeah. Exactly. Also, I think that there's a there's an awareness, isn't there, recently of things like um you know, kids that are being um, forced to do sports in order that they're, you know, so that for their country, for their families, so that to the point where they they don't really have any choice, and so you know they may well be on the on the path to 
um, success, but at what cost and how much right do they actually have to 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 decide what's happening? Um, and also, again, you know that those we we know from very from se several incidents where there's where there's the crossover there between um, you know elite sport and um, and sexual um, abuse. I think one of the things that that I think that I see that trips trips me up trips trips a lot of people up. Um, I, I I feel is. Um, is the fact that a lot of this, so many experiences are different because so many identities are different because so many, um, the perception of people are, you know, person A and person B can have the same exact experiences, but have in completely opposite outcomes, depending upon <laughs> their experiences prior to that point. Right. Um, and so we often try to find language that describes an experience of a, of a person, um, but we're we're often missing the kind of the, the golden thread. <laughs> um, for me, I think focusing on experience. Um, sometimes it sounds a little weird in 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 at least when I'm writing research. I I found it just to, to talk about people who have experiences that are exploitive. Um, when you talk about experiences, then you can talk about power and control. You can talk about um, because ultimately, in, in every one of these situations, really, we're talking about consent, coercion, power, control. We're talking about dynamics. Um, and all of that is contingent upon the identities that people hold for themselves, um, where they place themselves against other people, whether they feel that they can respond, whether they feel that, that you know, um, are we even using, are we even talking about this in the right way? I mean, that's, I guess maybe that's the, one of the, the questions. It kind of raises an interesting point there because I, I've been working with a couple of people, one who considers herself a, a lived experience expert and another who considers herself a survivor and, and some others. And both of those individuals, this, this, you know, it's, 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 a particular kind of situation in some senses, but both of those individuals came out of an environment in which they didn't see themselves as having options. They didn't see that there was another world in which they could be a participant, that um, that it was the, the world in which they were brought up. And I can think now not of the, because I've done work with people who who've been straight out criminals mm -hmm. who grew up in that world. That was the world in which they grew up, so that was the norm. The rest of us were stupid for working because a hell of a lot easier to go steal something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the price was not and the price, and you know, their dad, their mother, their father, their uncle, you know, whatever. It was all part of the game. It was who they were. And how do we how do we address that? Because I'm aware of families where grandmothers were trafficked and the mothers were trafficked and the daughters mm -hmm. are trafficked, and it's all generational. Yeah, yeah. And so when yeah. we talk about this, we're putting our own construct on this kind of thing mm -hmm. in our own way. Totally. Yeah. 
on the other hand, we don't have a real option if we're going to try to address the issue. No. No, and 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 often we that, I mean, that's one of the things coming back to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child was it did create a common language that could be used by everybody. So then people so then you know we would understand what each other was talking about when we talked about different types of abuse and exploitation for example so and that's been refined by different like the palermo protocol and things like that but i i yeah i think it's a, i think that's a really good point yeah. one thing that i feel is uh, i feel it would be good for us to explore a bit more because um williams here in particular is is you know where where um where it gets really dangerous for people to talk. Um, William, do you want to just briefly explain your context in Kenya and what's going on there and why why it's really important for us to um, be aware of it? Do you want me to talk about specifically about the um, <clears throat> sex sex? Industry, sex, the so called sex industry or sex yeah. trafficking. Um, sure. Okay, in, let, let me say that, that I'm, context, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a research right now, um, working on a student participation in social change. So when Dr. Glenn talks about child participation, uh, that's, that's my, you know, that's my area of research right now. And primarily, I'm looking at uh, the role of children agency in anti child sex trafficking advocacy. Uh, my research context is uh, the coastal part of Kenya, Mombasa. Uh, Mombasa is an island, right, in the, in the, in the coastal part of Kenya. And then uh, we have several other places around there, several other counties around there, Kilifi, Kuala, and yeah. And um, my my interest in that, why why I did this was um, <clears throat> I was working as a nonprofit director uh dealing with a child sponsorship program. I was kind of in charge of a child sponsorship program that was in education, healthcare, and uh, socioeconomic empowerment, and also faith, uh, faith development. And I happen to be in the coastal part of Kenya. Well, I don't really come from there, but I, I just went there for, for work. And uh, as I was working there, there were a lot of, I met with a lot of stories of child sex exploitation. I, I take child sex exploitation as a little bit of a kind of a bragged term. Because under that, we've kind of just have, you know, trafficking. And now we have all these other forms of trafficking, just like, uh, like uh, I think John has, has highlighted. And all those ones are there. Labor, uh, forced marriage, uh, sex, and, you know, even begging in the streets. So all those kind of things are there, those those different forms. But the stories were really hard to me. And so I, uh, but then I witnessed something else unique. And this was something beautiful. Um, there were a team of young teenagers between the age of, I think, 13 to 17. And I think they also had a few other elders, some few people kind of were mentoring them. And what they were doing was, they were coming up with, um, they're using music and um, ideally performing arts to kind of voice out the challenge of child sex trafficking. And they, they, were, they were packaging terms and uh, packaging music and then going out there to engage a culture, a culture which was really 
uh, encouraging child sex exploitation. And I would say the culture was encouraging because it's a, it's a kind of a culture which, in that particular area, which is um, uh, involves celebration of the dead. When someone dies, people come together to celebrate and also to mourn, and then they bury the dead. And that takes a while. That may take like five days. And during that time, everybody stops. Uh, everything stops in the village. And people just come together to the home of the deceased, and their job is kind of just to, to mourn. But then um, I would say uh, a lot of other people, especially business people, take advantage of that. And there's a lot of music which is kind of just, you know, uh, displayed there for free. And kids come because it's a communal, communal setup. People, everybody comes. And in that kind of a situation, um, <clears throat> now kids are easily prayed out, either for marriage or abused or... Uh, the you know there are arrangements going on there to kind of traffic them and you know take them away, and especially because these activities take take place during the night. So back to the small group of young young uh, teenagers. So these ones these these ones were coming up with a kind of a different approach. I think from a cultural anthropology point of view. I think they were bringing in what I may term as a, a, a functional substitute, whereby they bring in something into the culture using the same tools of the culture, music and performance. And then they package it in a way that engages that culture in a way to address or, or maybe to discourage uh, sex exploitation for kids. And these were the kids, kids doing that. So that kind of really struck me to want to research more uh, what opportunities are there? What potentials are there for children to engage in anti-child sex trafficking advocacy? And I'm digging deep into that, kind of just trying to see not just music and uh, performing arts, but also symbols and rituals that could also be incorporated into the work of advocacy by children to engage in anti-child sex trafficking. So that's, that's kind of the... Kind of just my research, I thought just sharing my research would give you kind of like what is happening in Kenya and, you know, what I'm trying to to do. Um, uh, Glenn, is there something specific you want me to touch about? I know we are talking about terminologies. We're talking about language. And maybe you can mention this. Um, I know the UN, the UN um, charter on uh, on uh, child, <clears throat> child, you know, issues of child participation, issues of children's rights. Uh, I know it as it the definition of children as people below the age of 18. But in my context, um, that definition doesn't seem to work <laughs> in, in that particular context. In fact, I would say the definition of a child is uh, it's more of a sociological issue mm -hmm. in that particular context. I'm saying this because we have people who are um, 15, 16, 17, and their mothers, they have about two, three kids, um, and their mothers, and they're considered mothers in that particular society. Because, of course, they got, they, they got married off when they were young and that kind of a thing, and then they're no longer treated as children anymore. Though, age-wise, they're still young, they're still below 18, but the society doesn't see them as kids. Their brains so are... Those kind of things, Yes. <laughs> So maybe I can stop at that and probably 
yeah, we can engage more. Like Glenn, did you did you want me to say more, or do you have a question? No, I, I'm. I think it's really really good. But I think one of the things I wanted to say was, um, you know, this is a group of this is a group of victims who are mm-hmm. trying to have a voice, but they they're actually. And they understand that, that this is actually a really difficult thing to do, uh, because because it's it's um, because of the uh, because children's voices are not really valued for to start with, but also because um, because that there's people at different higher levels who are going to make it very difficult for them if they if they expose what's going on, um, and so. So they're they're thinking of this creative way of using song to 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 give themselves voices. Upset a power structure. Yes, to upset. I mean, it's just it's a phenomenal idea. <laughs> um, I just think I, I'm. I just wanted people to hear so that they could see what an impressive um, thing that you're trying to to work with there and. Um, I mean, it almost makes this kind of look at new- neutrality um, a bit silly, really. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like this, 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 when, when you get down to the real, the real stuff. It's just yeah. it's, this is really this is hard. Struck by William's discussion of music and art because they're languages, mm-hmm. and we're now and, and it's a different kind of language. It's mm-hmm. a visual language and an oral language. And the visual language is multidimensional. And the oral language, and what we're using here with all this stuff is a string language. And we're trying to look at how to relate to these things that are multidimensional. Mm. And uh, I was just in Chicago this past week on, on one of my projects. And I was out at the, at the, at Midway, which is, a gateway for a lot of this stuff. They may not recognize it, but it is. <laughs> but in any event, so my colleague and I were walking through from the from the transit operation over to the terminal, and there was art that was there, and we both triggered on. There's no kids' art about exploitation. And yet, how and kids do express themselves in art about exploitation. And there's a whole area in psychology which use sand trays with kids so kids can portray things that they can't articulate. Mm. And how how do we how do we bring that in? I don't I don't know the answer. It's just mm. it just triggered off this whole other domain that we're really not talking about when we think about this stuff and ways to get at it. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I really I, like that, using it as a language, um, John. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Another form of language. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really think that being able to get down to, you know, I, I think about this sort of in anthropological terms where, you know, you have like values and then you have beliefs and, and then you have like practices and you have, you know, just this like, like layer. And, and I, 
I keep thinking how how do we how do we describe how do we sort of like we fight with this all the time trying to figure out how do we how do we describe like for instance in a survey or in a protocol if we're going to be having conversations with young people how do we describe how do we use language that describes the phenomenon of not being able to say no um and and needing to to do whether it be labor or or something where there is a threat but because mom is saying to do it or because dad is saying to do it well it's 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 okay um you know that's what commonly what we see in familial exploitation what we see in in export trafficking in athletics it's 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 it's, it's there are family members and their exploitation of 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 those hierarchies that are kind of unwritten within families um how can we then describe these phenomena using words that that actually articulate that experience rather than applying a label which requires a prior understanding of what abuse is or what exploitation is or what trafficking is or um because ultimately when we're looking at experiences we're like you said, it's multifaceted, it's multidimensional, and it's not something that I, I feel like we need to get a lot better at this, at communicating that phenomenon and beyond pre-existing legal terminology of what things are. Does that does that make sense? I don't know if, if, if I'm making sense or if I'm way too abstract. I mean, I think that makes sense, Jared, and I think, I don't know, this, it also points to the importance of qualitative research and letting um, victims explain things in their own words instead of us using terms or boxes for them to fit into, but for them to describe something in their own words. But, you know, the bigger abstract thing of it is, do we even have those words that they can, you know, describe their experience? But um, yeah, with what we have, that's, you know, I think that points to the importance of qualitative research and doing those interviews and letting survivors have their voice to speak about their experience. I mean, honestly, that's, that's where nuance comes from mm-hmm. uh, because that's, that's where we, because in, in, in many ways, I think because of how we, we think, we think in terms of funding, we think in terms of generalizations and what's needed for, to establish policies and things like that. I mean, I think this is really interesting because at some level, we are all talking about trying to develop policy that helps us address things, and that ends up turning into into statutory structures and all that sort of stuff. And yet, when you get down to the to the street level, so to speak, that's a domain that has almost, other than negative, almost no meaning to people who are within that world. And finding ways to translate from that the world in which they're living and operating and the world in which they come out of into things which can be meaningful for them requires us to figure out how to do the translation of languages. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm just thinking now again to go back to the the thinking about music and and art. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we take what we learn from someone's expressing themselves in music and art 
and turn it into something which allows us to develop policy to help them at that level. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going, if if we want, if we're going to try to go to to go back up to where you were with Jared, if we're talking about people who are going to make policy and decisions about how to how to fund, how to how to support whatever the case may be. In some way, we have to make the translation from the language that's meaningful to the people involved in that world into a language which the people who are going to be making policy can understand and comprehend and say, yeah, that's as meaningful as not. I mean, so you know, it goes to, to the comment about qualitative work the reality of it is is that when we get to this point where we're talking about how are we going to help people make decisions they're not looking at it qualitatively because the only metric that they have is money and mm-hmm. benefit and how do you calculate the benefit stream right. uh, and and so how do you calculate the values of those stakeholders who are at different, very different places in this world? Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're trying to do that in a project that I'm on right now, which we're looking at a whole new analytical model mm-hmm. to be able to capture the values of different stakeholders. Oh, that's great. And raise, raise the values of those people who are at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak, such that we understand what that what that value to them is if we can do a better job of addressing the problems that they are confronting. Exactly. And what that value is to society. I don't know the answer, but I, I, I mean, it's, it's a struggle to try to figure this out. And right now, everything we do is in the string language. Yeah. Yeah. Again, high level of abstraction here because that's where I tend to to play. Mm. But it, that's, I mean, it's, it's great though because it's. I mean, I think we, I think we need to be well versed in it and to be able to talk in this and to translate it into into something that makes sense. So I think because it is abstract, <laughs> but I think it is it's needed. Um, I think one one of the things I think um, that we 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 can make assumptions on what we think is more difficult or more painful or more or harder for people without actually listening to them and asking them what they think is. So we, you know, we I mean we've mentioned this that you know we sexual exploitation is a big thing, but actually, if you're if you're uh, somebody in extreme poverty in a very difficult context what are the what are the real problems for people you know we're we're focusing on we may be focusing all our energy on on sexual exploitation when actually it may be something else that we should be focusing on i'm doing this in order to survive um yeah exactly (laughs) yeah exactly and for them that's and and i also i think you know like it even with, I mean, in that the research we did in Boy Pet Jarrett, where you had the, you know, the way that the boys interpreted 
their experience of exploitation was very different than what the, the way that the girls experienced the ask? way the girls described it. What, yeah, like, what is the key? What is the key danger for boys who cross the border for work? And what is the key danger for girls? And girls believed that the key danger was sexual was uh, being raped for for girls and getting hit by cars for boys. Boys believed that it was getting hit by cars for boys and getting raped for girls. So they both believed the same thing. However, boys were seven times more likely to score four or seven. I can't remember which study that was, but exponentially more likely to disclose experiencing sexual abuse and exploitation. And so a lot of even 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 the boys who said that, yes, I've been raped says, no, it doesn't happen to boys, it, it, but it does happen to girls. And boys are just at risk of physical violence, getting hit, punched, things like that. So how our preconception of our gender can make whole areas completely invisible to us, even if we've experienced it ourselves. Um, and we found that really interesting in that study. Yeah, I think that speaks to you know, what society tells us our experience should be and then molding yeah. our experience into what is expected. So, yeah, I did want to open it just as we're getting a little bit closer to the end of time. If um, any of the individuals we haven't heard from yet, if you have any thoughts or questions, comments about any of this, just want to um, give other individuals a time to jump in. If not, no worries. but. Um, I think it's really interesting because like it's none of this is rocket science, but it it can look like rocket science if your perspective is from someone, you know, who's working with the, the, the top down. Right. But when you're looking at from the perspective of people with experience, this is this is it couldn't be it couldn't be more simple, you know, a lot because because it makes sense when, you're, when you have their their perspective. Yeah. Sorry. And I think like if CEOs if people who ran programs, if governmental entities just heard the discussion, that would inform, you know, I don't know, this is critical information. And yeah, Jared, you're right. I mean, not only some of the people on the ground, but some of the people that have been doing this for years, like us, it's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like we're agreeing, but you know, we're kind of preaching to the choir. So just having, yeah, just people with influence, maybe having the access to this kind of information would be awesome. And so I got permission to air this critical discussion on the Emancipation Nation podcast, because I think Jared is right. It's not rocket science. If you are someone that sits in a position where you are continually trying to learn the other perspective, that you practice humility and that you honor other people's realities, then this discussion is quite simple. It's, it's something that you've already been struggling with as you work with people who are different than you, maybe ethnically different, maybe their histories are different, maybe their gender is different, maybe their nationality um, is different. You've already grappled with this. You've been grappling with it. It is a, a struggle of yours. It is something you take into consideration as you work with, with people who are even similar to you, but maybe have different 
histories. Um, so if you are someone that sort of um, blindly has gone through life thinking, well, everybody's doing fine. Everybody's equal to me. Uh, I don't see color. Uh, this is going to be a very eye-opening discussion uh, to you. So, and and I think it's it's a way of allowing you to peer in or peek in to discussions among scholars around the world. These are the things that we grapple with as we attempt to create knowledge, right? So this group, we have these uh, dialogues probably monthly or so um, with scholars from all over the world. And we do this through our Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars. So I want to make sure you know what that is. Actually, we shorten it to GATS. G-A-H-T-S dot com. So you can go to GATS.com and you can learn more about our um, international partnerships um, to create knowledge and to further the knowledge base. And who you've been listening to is Jared Davis and Dr. Glenn Miles. So the mission of GATS is to respond to human trafficking by moving the knowledge base forward. And of course, once you create knowledge, it trickles down to policymakers and they use it to create laws. It trickles down to practitioners and agencies, social service, criminal justice, healthcare agencies, and so on. And they build practice models based on that. And it can drive the paradigm. That is the way people see things. It controls uh, the narrative. Um, in terms of how people look at the issue, how people look at survivors or people with lived experience or um, those types of things. So GATS is a very important organization in my mind. So if you are a researcher in this field or a journalist or a practitioner or a survivor, or you're just looking to learn more about um the multidisciplinary fields of uh, anti-human trafficking work, consider joining us. You can join at the senior research scholar level. Uh, that is $120 a year, and we use that information to keep uh, GATS going. You can become uh, um a research scholar. You can become a developing scholar for $60 dollars a year, or you can become an advocate for free um, and just be able to get our newsletter, be able to get access. And I think one of the amazing things that we offer is access to the Journal of Human Trafficking. And that is one of the first peer-reviewed journals where um, research, where you can find research articles on human trafficking and ways that we are advancing the knowledge base. So this is a has been a very scholarly kind of intellectual kind of abstract discussion, but certainly has um, very practical implications. So um, I wanted to give you a window into some of the discussions that we have, because as we move the knowledge base forward, like I said, it shapes the way people think about the issue. And the fight continues. Let's not just do something, 
Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.